at the Leicester Summer School, which is the 15th, uh, 15th Leicester Summer School, 15 years I've been going. And they have it up in the uh, Leicester University in the Botanical Garden, which is a very beautiful place. I think it's quite old and uh, a lot of mature trees. And over the past years they've been working on it, so at this time it was really magnificent. All this lovely weather, all the flowering plants, the green, the beautiful trees, specimen trees, the ponds with the fish and the fountains, <coughs> the manicured lawns. Then they had an uh, exhibition of modern sculptures, so it's a good place where for modern uh, sculpture to dis display it out in the open because so much of it is so big that it's not the kind of thing you want to exhibit in your living room. That was interesting to see these, all these different figures, uh, people's skills in sculpting uh, either in the marble or various other materials. And so the Leicester Summer School then has a lot of, usually, the, the people that generally go to it are kind of elderly people. So, uh, I think there was only one young person there. <laughs> Uh, and it's, many of these people have been practicing Buddhism for years. They're from the Buddhist society, Christmas Humphreys era, and and Vero's uh, Metta period, and all that. So that it's, uh, uh, they've been interested and in somehow pursuing it in their own ways. Of course, in England, uh, many Buddhists. Uh, many people are interested, but they live in rather remote places, you know, so they they call themselves closet Buddhists, you know, they don't usually proclaim themselves, they don't come out in the open, but they have this summer school in Leicester where they'll come in secretly and we reveal ourselves to each other. 
over the 15 years you get to know uh, these people quite well you enjoy their company and uh, it's a kind of it's not like a real retreat where you you know you have to keep quiet and and uh, practice meditation all the time it's generally quite a social event a lot of talking chit chat and they have incredible meals huge meals and tea all the time you know every few minutes there's a cup of tea here. <laughs> but they, just here in England for example just the amount of interest that existed in this country for, for such a long time is to see the people that have practiced you know, over years as they get older, somehow it even becomes more meaningful, more useful as you as you age. Because the teaching of the Buddha definitely, you know, it prepares us for the realities that we have, that we must face as human beings. So sometimes we have you know, when we when we start meditation, when we if we're young, then we we tend to be very idealistic about it, and and uh, uh, you know get inspired. Uh, this kind of idealism and inspiration tends to propel us along in the beginning, <clears throat> and then at the Leicester Summer School, spending a week there, they they're not in that stage anymore. Inspiration. Or idealism. When you get old, you just you forget all that, and you're more just aware of life. You know, and glad you survived it somehow, uh, as well as as one has. Of course, living in the botanical gardens up in Leicester is like living in uh, Tushita Heaven, the Geshe Gedon. He, he was kind of totally impressed with the place. And, he said, oh, he said, this is the pure land. This is the Tushita heaven. <laughs> and then people like to see, you know, different schools of Buddhism getting along with each other, you know, so the Tibetan Lama and Tveravadan bhikkhu and and then you, there's sometimes there's a Korean monk and and then there's people that are prone to Zen and others to various other styles <coughs> and of course it's uh, I think it, uh, Buddhists we all have this you know longing to to not be sectarian and this kind of ideal that we we have of not clinging to a sect because so much of our experience of religion is is usually the experience of some kind of sectarian approach and so we you know we have biases or prejudices or we're we're supposed to align ourselves with one and then look down on on all the rest So there's also somebody there, uh, 
uh, school teacher from Wales who's, who's initiated last year this, uh, this uh, peace mala project where she's made these uh, kind of malas with different colored beads on them and each color represents a different religion. She's a religious studies teacher at a school in Wales and and she's uh, the Dalai Lama and and uh, various other significant figures have kind of are supporting this project. It's quite a nice project. And it's, uh, she's very enthusiastic about uh, religious tolerance and these kind of these are ideals that we have. And of course, in Britain today, it it is a multi-religious country. You hear people say it's no longer just a Christian country. You know, it's all religions here now. And then, of course, the English Christians must feel a bit threatened by that because there is a security in the old ways. You know, when England was English and Christian and C of E and, and the certainties of convention, the old conventions, and then to feel a kind of lack of certainty and insecurity when things change. You know, when, the, when they say it's no longer a Christian country, that could be very threatening to devout C of E Christian. Because if you're brought up as a Christian, you know, that's like we're in the United States. The United States is a Christian country. We heard this all the time. And that was supposed to, you know, that's, that's a good thing. To be a Christian country is a good thing. And it gives you a sense of, you know, support to a certain mindset of nationalism and, and uh, confidence democracy, Christianity, these are things you can really trust. The United States of America, you can trust. All these are good. USA, democracy and Christianity, especially Protestant Christianity. Catholicism was always a bit, you know, suspect. <laughs> and we, used to, we were told, you know, that President Kennedy was the first Catholic, Roman Catholic president ever in the history of the United States because the, the, the propaganda used to be if you ever had a Catholic become president of the United States he would enslave us to the Vatican. We'd all become slaves of the Pope. <laughs> that, that was actually what they used to say, tell us. <clears throat> No, we must admit, you know, like the nationalism, patriotism, uh, these identities are are now really no longer very meaningful. You know, the, it it just creates it it increases this division. You know, and so that that these forms of ways of thinking that that have been so popular in the past century, you know, so so fashionable, 
seeming so right or so useful now seem le passé and even dangerous. And, and this uh, attachment to a religious, particular religion, you know, where, where that very attachment blinds us to look down on every other religion, even when we don't know anything about other religions. Just our own lo loyalty or allegiance to a particular form of Buddhism uh, seems no longer a skillful way to, uh, to think. And so it's time, you see so many, like, movements now awaken, talking about awakening and uh, here and now reality. Uh, Eckhart Tolle's The Power of Now became a bestseller. Uh, the, the, uh, there's uh, various other psychologists and scientists and religious teachers and that are always, uh, you know, suddenly discovered here and now is where it's at. Awaken here and now. Awake here and now. <laughs> and so, you know, nationality, you know, uh, patriotism, nationalism, uh, and, and aligning oneself with a religious tradition in some kind of, because of its historical, because it's historical or it has a past and a future. If we're, you know, we, then we, we are caught in that trap of our thoughts, which are linear and then always based on the illusion of past and future. And when you look at the present, the reality of the present, what's there to say about it? You need to say here, now. Does it give a place and a time? The place is here, the time is now. That's not really saying very much, but it's pointing, isn't it? Where the future, what does the future hold for us? Overpopulation, pollution, shortage of water, all these kind of dire aspects are, are in the news now all the time, you know. All the problems that we can imagine will happen in the future. They're happening now. The, the um, pollution of the planet, there's going to be a shortage of water. We're going to, we're going to be fighting each other over bottles of water, things like this. Well, uh, there's so many people now everywhere. Pretty soon the whole planet will be nothing but people. Imagine just every continent completely covered with people. And then of course we want our own space, we want our freedom. <laughs> um, but if, if we keep breeding and, and so forth, then of course, then it just keeps. Um, that's what we're doing our bit here is celibate, aren't we? We're taking a stand against. <laughs> we're into birth control. So the future, uh, the future when I was young, you know, back in the 50s, 
seem to be, you know, sky's the limit. Everything's going to get better and better. There is a, a real solid belief in the, the concept of progress and evolution. And these, these kind of concepts were, were you know, de rigueur in, in, in our way of thinking. And so progress, everything's going to get better and better. We're progressing, advancing. Then the past, you know, the, we could, uh, the past is very real for us because we remember the past. So in, as you get older, you know, the past is, uh, you know, you look back and it, it doesn't seem all that long ago, but it, suddenly your life is, 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 you know, coming to an end and, and it, it's all over, but you have all these memories. So somebody my age, the future, what, death really, increasing old age, increasing decrepitness, death. When I was young, and I was 20, it was, uh, sky's the limit. The world is my oyster, you know. I was looking forward to a future. Um, all kinds of things. There's so many possibilities and options and, and so much potential available for someone of my generation back in the 1950s. Mm. The past seemed, from that, when I was 20, it seemed to be, I've got over that, you know, teenage and the, the misery of adolescence and the tyranny of parents, you know, you're <coughs> declaring your independence and uh, you're freeing yourself from, from the shackles of parental control and the, and the uh, endless... Uh, Self, uh, horrible self-conscious problems that one had as an adolescent. <clears throat> and so in, in 2021 there was a kind of uh, everything's possible. And I think of old age sickness and death was just never a thought that occurred when I don't remember thinking about that. But the here and now uh, one didn't regard that as being worth anything either. They always, what, what I'm doing when I was young, what I'm doing now is always some kind of preparation for the future. You know, so I can, you know, get, make a million or get the university degree or meet the right person or be successful or attain or achieve, uh, travel, uh, life of adventures and romance and excitement. But that wasn't happening usually in the present. It was pos potential for the future. <laughs> and so the future always ha has this, it's a perception in the present, isn't it? You know, future is only that. It's, a, it's, it's an abstraction that we create about the potential that the, the possibilities but the present but we create it in the present so the future is is a perception of time what hasn't happened yet but we hope c 
could happen or we dread. We, we have, the future holds a lot of dread. Something terrible will happen. <clears throat> and so the past is the memory. And the good times, the bad times. So this way of just contemplating what time really is, the reality of time, since all there is is here and now, you know, that you really reflect. That's all there ever is, is now, is in regards to time. So then, that diminishes, isn't the importance of the past and the power of the future. Because you're, you're putting it into what it really is. It's the creation of the mind. Memories of the past. We don't remember everything, do we? Of our past. It's selected memories. Usually the extremes of success or failure, whatever. But memories, whatever you know, when you, you just think of, of yesterday or last week, Lester Summer School, that's a memory right now. That's past. Lester Summer School is over. And the next year, we'll have another one. <laughs> and so, who knows what's going to happen next year at the Lester Summer School. It's the unknown. And so the establishment of awareness in the, is the present, you know, this, this um, just noticing, awakening, paying attention. Lester Summer School is a memory. Lester Summer School is a possibility in the future. And I create that in the present. And so this ability to reflect, isn't it? Just to, to think, to listen to yourself thinking. What is that about? You know, when we, we, we live our lives maybe without reflection, when we do that, then we, we do become somebody who has a past and a future. And the present then, its function is to is to, you know, do something now in order to, uh, for the future, to save money, to practice meditation, to pray, to uh, study, to do something now, to ordain as a, as a monk or nun in order to attain enlightenment in the future. You know, so this, is, this is the way we think. These are the perceptions that, uh, that that create a strong sense of me as a person with a history. I'm a personality with a history. My, I was born, you know, in a, and I have a birth certificate. I have a passport. I can prove to you legally that I was born. And, uh, and um, but I can't tell you when I'm going to die. Could be any time. 
because the future is the unknown and the past is a memory. So there's a kind of certitude regarding the past. I was actually born, I've got legal proof. My generation in Seattle gave nice little certificates. And strangely enough, they didn't take fingerprints, but my footprint, my right foot, you know the big one that everybody complains about, that was only that big when I was born, and, it, and its print is stamped onto this certificate. So that, you know, I think maybe if they, if they did it with my hand, my hand would be kind of swollen or big. <laughs> I have a pass I've got two passports. I'm better off than most people in this world who only have one. Some people don't have any. Geshe Gedun doesn't even he's a he's a he's he's a homeless has no nation, he has no passport, he has to have a travel document. You know, he's a Tibetan refugee, but he's born in Nepal. He wasn't born in Tibet. His parents fled Tibet. And, and then he was born in Nepal. But he can't, they, in Nepal they won't acknowledge him, and in India they won't acknowledge him. So he's living in Italy, so eventually Italy will, you know, he can get Italian citizenship. But he doesn't have any passport, you know. I have two. So that's, uh, that's good fortune. American passport and a British passport. I don't know which is safer to use now. They're both... <laughs> you hear about oh, the Al-Qaeda wanting to kill off, pick off Americans. So maybe I better shut up and not kind of pronounce myself as that. Disguise myself. The British aren't so hated quite as much. <clears throat> but they've, they've gone along with it all. So the past, you know, the memories arise and the, the present and the time now internationally is that the, the war on terrorists and so forth is we, we've got to have a war otherwise it, what good is a superpower if it's not fighting a war? You know, what, what's the point? You know, you've got a huge weapons industry with an incredible, you know, very wealthy country that can create the most incredible kind of high-tech weapons. You know, they're absolutely fantastic. Look what they did in Iraq in, in just two weeks or three weeks. Took over a whole country. There's their superior high technology. So, you know, that's quite a feat. And that shows a really super duper power, you know. You know, second rate power at all. And to attack the forces of evil in the world, that's messianic. You know, to kind of wipe out the evil forces. You know, because you can't find a, where can you find a real solid enemy anymore after the Soviet Union collapsed? Who can you pick on? 
They have to find somebody, something. Because so much of our sense of our self-importance depends on, on that, isn't it? On having enemies, having opponents. Uh, this, this sense of oneself is, is heightened. One's importance is heightened, isn't it? As a person or a nation of people, when you have, uh, you know, when you're fighting against the forces of evil, the democratic forces that are going to save the world from evil and that you know gives a real purpose to one's existence to one's life just notice in your own practice you know when you don't have a lot of interesting kilesis to fight against it's very hard to be nobody isn't it to be nothing. It's, it's much easier to be somebody who's really meditating, you know, doing something, like developing positive qualities and fighting off the kilesis. There's a real sense of, of being somebody who's doing something important. The warrior, you know, like uh, the Zen meditators, they take this position, you know, and they get straight backs and they've got, I think, this samurai syndrome where they, you know, it's fight off the, the evil forces. Because that, you know, that, that's, how, that, that's that, to me, that's quite inspiring. You know, the warrior symbol for the, for the male is a quite inspiring one. Just noticing how, how the, the personality depends, how much of our personalities depend on approval, on affirmation, on acceptance. You know, do I really exist if, if nobody likes me? Or, I mean, not that they even dislike me, if nobody really liked me or disliked me. If everybody just didn't even look at me or notice me. They didn't beat me up. They didn't persecute. They didn't acknowledge me. Who would I be? You know, so living in a community, there's notice how, how it affects, you know, a sense of, of who we are. You know, senior, junior, monk, nun, Samanera, and Agarika. All this kind of thing is uh, the, these identities are very give us a sense of of being something because not being anything being totally here and now means we're, we were no nobody with nothing, no history, no personality just that awareness. So contemplate that. That, that's, that might be an ideal that you might like on a personal level, but the realities of it are what? What happens when the mind goes really calm, when things drop away? And at first it's very pleasant, but then, you know, find reactions to it. Things will, will start making up things. You know, the... They'll start, you know, 
figuring out things, trying to things to do, things to live the life as a samana in which we we have some purpose, some some something to do with our lives as samanas. What is there to do if you just sit and watch your mind? And you, you know, we can become an ajahn, become a dharma teacher, uh, become, you know, an engaged Buddhist, fight for the, you know, uplift of the society, or become a Buddhist missionary. We should spread the dharma and, and develop branch monasteries all over the world. Write books, dharma books. Teach meditation, and that, that so that the the sense of oneself aligns oneself to all these perceptions. Or we might, you know, be the kind of I just I just want to be a simple monk, you know, living a simple life with the four requisites, and and we might idealize that, wanting to become this simple monk living by a waterfall in, in a state of perpetual samadhi. So the, the point is awaken, awakenness is now, isn't it? It's not, not a, you know, the planning to awaken in the future is ridiculous. So recognize, you know, that, that this path is a real awakening to the way it is. So it's, it's not what you really want as a person sometimes. You know, it's nice to think of yourself as a Dhamma teacher or, a, you know, a, a meditation teacher or a, a monk, bhikkhu, or nun and or a Theravadan Buddhist, or Mahayana, or Bodhisattva, all these kind of things are, you know, they're very nice, very lovely concepts. But at this moment, right now, in the pure awareness, you know, I can't find, you know, the idea of me being a monk. That's only a, I create that perception. I am a bhikkhu. Even now I create that perception. That's a convention. But the awareness, say I'm reflecting, I'm saying I am a bhikkhu, but I'm aware that I'm saying it. That awareness is not a bhikkhu. That awareness doesn't have any, it's not a monk or nun, or there's no quality to it. It's no thing. You can't, you can't get hold of it. You can't, it's not red or green or any, anything like that. You can't find it. So it's, it's a re, what they call a realization, a recognition, to the point you can't get beyond, to the shore that has no shore beyond it. The, the still point of the turning world, the axis mundi, 
And so that's what the Buddha is suggesting we take refuge in. In nothing. No thing. Let's say if we, you know, this is the starkness of this religion. It really, you know, it won't let you hold on to anything of this convention. Or we can create Theravada Buddhism into a kind of sect. And we take refuge in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha. We take the five precepts and we, the eight precepts and we believe in the Four Noble Truths and we believe in karma and rebirth. We have a catechism. What did Theravada Buddhists believe in? Karma and rebirth, Four Noble Truths, dependent origination, uh, Abhidhamma, three refuges, and uh, then there's the Thai, and then there's Sri Lankan, <laughs> and so forth. So then there's the uh, Thai forest tradition. So these, we, we, you know, when we, when we identify with these, even with the teachings, what happens? You know, we're limited. We limit ourselves to whatever we, we cling to. So we end up just being someone who knows about Buddhism. You know, we might be an authority on it. But the teachings then are not meant to be uh, clung to. They're like direction signs, you know, they're pointing. You go where they're pointing to and, and, and see what happens. So being nobody, nothing at all, you know, once that is recognized, and this is where the encouragement is, is this awareness practice of here and now, is to recognize the suffering of attachment, even do the very best of things, to conventions, to even the best conventions, to Theravada itself, to Buddha, even the name Buddha, attachment to any of it, out of ignorance, of vicha, vajaya sankara. And we can test this out, you know, see this, the suffering, the, the, this unsatisfactoriness, the sense of something in not yet done, something incomplete, when all we do is bind ourselves to conventions, no matter how good they might be, no matter how high-minded or inspiring they might be on that conventional level. As a personality, you know, what my personality can never get enlightened. When you see what a personality is, it's, you know, it's, it's nothing, it's, it's a dead thing, it's a series of memories and habits. And, and, and uh, based on delusions, based on ignorance. So, how could my personality, can I get an enlightened personality? Well, I could adopt all the, the jargon, 
of what I think enlightened person would be. You know, I can say all the wise things and, and all that and develop a kind of false, you know, kind of maybe prop up my personality and give it a more positive quality, but that's not it. You can't sustain it. You know, personalities are, 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 are really just habits of the mind. They, they're, they're nothing to them. So, and, and the emotional habits, all the fears, attachments, uh, desires, greed, and all the rest, greed, hatred, and delusion. But with all this, and the Buddha pointed to the knowing of these things, you know, greed, hatred, and delusion, if that's what, what's one, that is what one's nature is, there's no way out of it. There's no way greed, you know, hatred of greed doesn't get rid of greed. You know, so we, we might hate greed, but then we end up being a, person that hates greed, hate greedy people, hate the forces of evil. Hatred can't, can't see itself. When you're caught in hatred, clinging to anger and hatred, you can't see it. Hatred can't see it. It just uh, perpetuates itself. And delusion is in no, no way, you know, doubting, thinking, trying to figure things out and, and uh, endlessly trying to, to analyze and, and that. You're just going to, you just get con more confused. And when you're attached to confusion as your self-identity, you just see no way out of it. It just seems to, you know, to totally encompass you if you're attached to it. So this is the way out then is through awareness of it. Because every moment here and now whatever is going on inside, isn't it? We can be aware. It's that which is aware if, if anger arises. I know when anger arises. Or greed or delusion. Confusion. Doubt. Insecurity. There's a knowing of this. Insecurity. Fear. Anxieties like this. Greed. Lust is like this. Anger. Hatred. Aversion is like this. So this is where I encourage you to trust in that awareness. You know, really, that's when we say, take the refuges, that's what it's really pointing to. Buddha Dhamma Sangha is in that point of awakeness. That's the refuge. From there, you can see that your personality still operates, but your relationship to it is not a critic of it. No point in hating one's personality or despising it, but it is what it is. Sometimes my personality is quite nice, sometimes it's terrible. Depends on conditions. Isn't it? it you know, it just depends on the things that are happening. I can be a really nice person, a really horrible one. 
or a really boring one. Sometimes I'm a real bore, sometimes I'm an interesting person. But it, it changes, you know, they can't sustain that. <clears throat> when you're sick, you know, you, you're sick at your stomach, you feel nausea and you're tired. Personality changes when those conditions are present. Mine does, I, maybe yours doesn't. Or when you're with your parents, or when you're here, or with your best friend, or with somebody you don't like, or when you're at a, a you know, a multi-faith meeting, or you're with uh, the real hardcore forest tradition meditators, you know, you change. Huh, you, you, the conditions change, the personality changes accordingly. But the awareness is the same. So this is an encouragement to, you know, it's not, it's not asking something beyond your ability. It's, just, it's, uh, it's very simple and very precise, you know, if you, if you learn to trust, trust it. So that the time is now, the place is here. The knowing, the awakened in the here and now. That's the paradigm in putting to words. Then the reality of that's up to you. <laughs> so then, like listening, hearing yourself, trying to do something. You know, the, then people say, well, Ajahn Sameno has been practicing all these years and, you know, you should take step by step through this and then that stage and listen to that, you know. What you think, you know, you, 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 you've read books or been influenced by somebody and, they, and so you've formed opinions. Listen to all the opinions, not that they're, not to approve they're right or wrong, but to recognize to learn to trust in the awareness, not to just let yourself be always intimidated or lost in your own self-doubts or the influence you have from other people or from what you're reading. So your strength is coming from, from within you, you know, rather than depending on what others say or strong views you're holding or doubts about, you know, the, the, the doubt about yourself. Because, you know, one, the, what you think you are, you know, some of us had to start with, very, with a lot of self-critical habits, including myself. I was a real tyrant towards myself very critical and, uh, and um, self-disparaging. But I learned to listen to it. I, once I learned to listen to these habits of self-disparagement, I could see through them. There's an awareness. The self-disparagement is, is a habit. I used to wonder, why did I get such a habit? But I, I don't even care anymore. It's just 
don't believe in it anymore. So the the awakeness, the buto, in Thai they they puru, they use that in the Thai forest tradition, the the buto, the mantra buto, and the and translated in Thai as puru, the one who knows, the knowing. So this way of knowing, this awakened. This is all we have. This is the tool. This is the entrance. This is the deathless. So if you, and it's a knowing, it's not knowing about, it's a direct knowing. The Buddha knows the Dhamma. So you, you're taking refuge in the Buddha to, and knowing the Dhamma is like this. Though so the Dhamma, of course, you, you're not trying to, to uh, you know, you're not analyzing anything, but you're just, just the knowing all that is subject to rising is subject to ceasing, whatever it is. Emotion, thought, sense experience, whatever. But you're not thinking about it, you're not projecting those concepts onto experience. You're just through trusting and this awareness you see, you know this. This is the Buddha knowing the Dhamma. So it gets beyond the words. You have to give up the words. You know, those words help, they're pointers. But even Buddha Dhamma you give up to being here and now, present, awakened, centered, grounded. You know, the body itself is a... Use it for, you know, for reflection. Not trying to just live in a in a in the head, but it, the physical body has its, it's a useful tool if, you, if you're mindful of it, if you use it for awareness, for awakening. The experience, incarnation in a physical form, a sense, a sensual form, it's, it's, it contains things and that, so it, it gives, and it, but the awareness, you know, you're aware of the body, you're no longer identifying or limiting yourself to the to the view you have about your body as yourself. So in this way it's all part of it's all Dhamma, the body, the feelings, perception, mental formations, consciousness, five khandas, Six ayatanas, the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, mind. These are words, aren't they? They're just, but they're pointing. What, what are they now? So I'm seeing, now I'm looking out at you. I'm aware that I'm looking or listening. Odors come and I'm aware of the odor of incense or whatever. So whether the senses are, are, are dhamma for us, they, but they're no longer, and, and you know, something that delude us or that we, we 
you know, we use for delusion. Everything awakens, everything falls into place when you have trust in this awakened attention in the present. So the form that we live in, let's see that it's a tool for this. The, the Amravati itself, monasticism, uh, Theravada Buddhism, these are the icons, the Buddha images, candles, incense, flowers, a whole lot. They say, how do, you know, this is, you can say this is Buddhism, so we can, we can attach to all this, you know, our Theravada style and, and look down on others that we, you know, don't go along with our view of how Buddhist temples should look like. Or, then we become sectarian, waste of time, you know, that's not the point. But do, see, you know, how to use this form, like the robe and the bowl and everything, for awakenness, not for identity, not as some attachment to, to give you, to make yourself some, somebody and to think you're, you're some kind of, you know, increases your self-identity as a monk or a nun, but awareness of it. You know, the simplify, the whole point of the first tradition is of simplification of life towards letting go, surrender, relinquishment, their life becomes very simple, very immediate. No longer are we complicating it endlessly with our fears, our ignorance, our desires. So I offer this as a reflection for this evening. <clears throat>